Welcome to StoryWise. This is the podcast designed to give you the in-depth story behind some of our top storytellers as a way to inform, motivate, and inspire you to believe that you too can make your dreams a reality. My name is Jen Grisanti. I am the Story Career Consultant at Jen Grisanti Consultancy, Inc., a writer's consultancy committed to guiding your vision and helping you get to the next step in your career. Today, I am honored to have as my guest, Craig Sweeney. Craig is currently the co-EP on Medium, which is now on Friday nights on CBS at 9 o'clock? 9 o'clock, that's right. At 9 o'clock. Let me tell you a little something about Craig. Craig graduated from Colgate University in 1996. One thing I noticed that is fascinating about Craig's climb, which we haven't gone into on this show, is he had several freelance scripts, um, starting with MDs, which didn't end up airing because of the the show not going. Uh, it was yeah, it was commissioned uh, and Great. written. Great. I think I was in about the second act of it when uh, the show was canceled. Oh, so then that had to have been really heartbreaking when it didn't go. It was heartbreaking, um, but the executive producer was nice enough to call me and go, hurry up and finish it as fast as you can and turn it in so you can get paid. Um, So I did get paid, and that was nice. Oh, Um, that's very nice. We love that. That makes it hurt a little less. Uh, It was the largest check I had seen up until that point (laughs) in my life. Yeah, I love it. And you and I met at Spelling Television when I was an executive there, and you were still an assistant before your massive laser climb to the top and and, uh, so after MDs Craig went on to do two freelances for Playmakers you were never on staff at Playmakers Uh, no I wasn't Um, were you an assistant on the show no I wasn't Uh, actually what what happened was uh, I had been represented for about a year at that point Um, my first agent was a guy named John Bauman who was a Gersh at the time Uh, and I I had Assumed, I guess, sort of because I had been led to assume that once you had an agent, that jobs would follow uh, immediately. Uh, and I just so I just gone through my first represented staffing season, uh, and it was incredibly uh, quiet and depressing. Uh, I I just remember sitting there playing uh, Medal of Honor, the video game, waiting for the phone to ring for about five weeks, and then suddenly staffing season was over. Uh, I, I had one meeting that season, um, and it was really a formality. Um, so such a formality that in the middle of the meeting, the non-writing executive producer came in and said, good news, we're all staffed up. Uh, Are you kidding drag. me? Right yeah. in the middle of your staffing meeting? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my which gosh. Was, which was really kind of heartbreaking. But, uh, but so luck changed for you pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, well, I was pretty down. It was, yeah. uh, it was, it was June and staffing season was over. And uh, there was a writer named Michael Angeli who had worked on Dark Angel. Yes. And had gone on to take a job at the show called Playmakers that I knew absolutely nothing about uh i didn't even know it existed and he called me one day and said uh that there were some you know some difficulties with the staff uh and that they were looking to find somebody to write a freelance uh and did i want to do it i mean he didn't even make me uh i didn't have to pitch oh, that's I did, I, wonderful I, yeah I, I owe michael quite a bit that's quite a bit wonderful. um so i came in and i did the i did the eighth episode of the season uh and it went quite well i really liked that show i liked writing it a lot i know a lot about football because I'm from Pittsburgh and everybody from Pittsburgh knows about football. Um, and Have so, you ever played or are you just... I mean, I played uh, I played right? until I was 12 years old or right. something. Um, right. You know, that most writers aren't good athletes, uh, including me. 
but I wrote the eighth, and it was well enough received by the showrunner, uh, John Eisendrath, that he actually contracted me to write the ninth one as well. Um, so I had to sort of... Oh, that is like the biggest... I love John. That is like the biggest compliment in the world. Oh, my God. It's a compliment. Um, it but was it's also... also a hurry. <laughs> I was sort of, yeah, immediately uh, went from triumph to uh, defeat. <laughs> Just because it was a, it's a lot to take on to... Uh, I was executing John's notes on my draft uh, at the same time that writing I was responsible for writing a new one, and it's certainly a lot to take on at that stage of your career. Uh, How fascinating looking back, though, because that would ju- that was just the beginning of your juggling doing so many things at one time. Yeah, I think I could do it now. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, I think you could. I think you could. Um, so after Playmakers, you went on to do a freelance episode on 40, the 4400, and Ira Bear was the showrunner as well as Renee at that time? Yeah, the way that that worked was uh, I was still Renee's assistant even as I was doing those Playmakers freelances. Uh, mm-hmm. It was actually incredibly convenient. Renee had a development office on the second floor of the old animation building right. uh, at, at Touchstone. And the playmaker's office was on the first floor, um, so I would just I would could wander down from there oh, and, uh, and 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 sit in on the story breaks, and then I could write upstairs in that in that second floor office. But um, Renee was hired to do a rewrite on uh, this pilot called the Forty Four Hundred, uh, which was really a cool concept. Uh, and they, I guess, the the network was looking for a different take on it, and so he he and I talked about it, and he executed this rewrite, and everybody liked it. But USA, the who was the network who was interested in in, in mounting it, um, they wanted to hear ideas for additional episodes. Uh, and the, you know the, the way this tends to happen is they call you on a Tuesday and go, "Yeah, we like your pilot, and we want to hear you know all your ideas by Thursday." Uh, and of course, what you've been doing is focusing on the pilot, so there's not a handful of ideas. Uh, luckily, I was crafty enough that I had some. Um, so I, when Renee, you know, I went over to his house one day and gave him. A number of things I had been thinking about as possibilities for the show, and he took one idea and uh, he tweaked it significantly, but brought it into USA and and they liked it and they wanted to do it. So I just dug my fingernails into it and I said, you know, you have to you have to let me do it. See, please, I lo- but I love that. I think that's great, Craig. So it's kind of like you you honestly created a lot of what happened for you by jumping off cliffs by putting stories out there and by I mean obviously your relationship with Renee was a great beginning as well that you you created a strong relationship from the get-go it appears you know yeah I mean it took it took a little bit of time I think um, you know as Renee saw that I was getting first represented and then getting some work he he began to uh, take you more go, serious, who, who is like, this young yeah. man is you know that that sits out in this antechamber for eight to ten hours a day um, but yeah, no, that's he was... a hard climb. I mean, to go from the assistant to getting uh, your boss to take you seriously enough to either recommend you for a freelance, give you a freelance, or staff you, that's a very difficult um, thing to have happen. You know, that's not easy to put into play. Yeah, it, it, uh, you know, it, the way I handled it, uh, I guess, would be the way I would recommend anybody handle it, which is uh, I first cultivated the people around my boss rather than going directly to my boss. You know, I mean, I was lucky that when I went to work for Renee on Dark Angel, uh, there was a staff of extraordinarily uh, generous and helpful writers who were willing to read my material and give me comments on it. And uh, in a lot of cases, 
pass it on to their agents and help me get representation. It was a really uh, friendly group of people. I love that. That's wonderful. Uh, I there were some great writers on that show. I remember who who were the standouts for you. Who well, I mean, I, I wouldn't say standouts as far as anybody's writing, but the people who uh, just sort of went out of their way to help me when they had. Right. No reason but kindness to do so. You're talking more so about be... the kindness. And, yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, Rob Doherty was a staff member on that show, uh, who's now my colleague at Medium. We we run the writing side of things together. Uh, and he really went out of his way to be kind. Uh, Jose Molina, who writes on Castle. Yeah. Michael Angeli, who eventually hired me on Playmakers. Oh, they were all uh, there. That's Moira, right. And Moira Kurland, who's now on Castle, too, and who I worked with for a long time on Medium. Uh, That's right. You know, the four of them were really uh, incredibly generous uh and it was really, they began to hear about my writing from them. Uh, Renee began to hear about my writing from them rather than from me. Uh, because I think you need to recognize that, you know, if your boss is a showrunner, they are being besieged uh, from all sides all day long, every day. I mean, it's an absolutely exhausting and terribly demanding job. Um, and so it's not personal that they're not particularly interested uh, in your career. It's it's They're really do, constantly doing triage. Um, and so you really need to pick your spots carefully as far as when you uh as when you approach the boss uh and the other thing is you want to be ready uh if i had handed renee the first spec i wrote which while i think was promising but there were a lot of uh i wrote an angel spec um which was just because i liked the show it was sort of a not terribly useful in the marketplace but um you know i think there was some good writing in there but structurally uh it was you know, it, it definitely was the work of an inexperienced writer. Um, so I think waiting, and I think I had probably three or four specs before I even passed one off to Renee uh, and an agent. Uh, and was, what was, was in, the one that Renee responded to? Do you remember? I the first thing he read was a CSI spec that I wrote, and he like I mean, and he was great about it. He liked it, and he he actually sent it to um, to somebody over at CSI who he was friends with. Uh, they didn't ultimately do anything with it, but that was incredibly kind. Uh, and then I think after he had uh, after he moved on from MD, from MDs uh, and this very generous man Jim Perriott had come in and, and given me a, a script, I, th- I think that also made Renee sit up and go, hmm. you know. And he we talked about it and he said, "What was the idea?" Uh, and I I told him the pitch that I had you know that I had been working on for a few months. And he was like, "Oh yeah, I would I would have been interested in that." Uh, so I think that sort of by that point he was really starting to take me seriously as a writer. He also had known that I had been hired back onto Playmakers, you know, that I, that I did one episode and then immediately had another one fall into my lap and he was hearing good things about me from the executives uh, who were working with Eisendrath, who he was working with as part of his uh, part of his overall deal. So uh, you're tapping into a lot of great things for writers to be aware of. I mean, strategically knowing how to utilize the relationships around you. Certainly, I agree with you that many showrunners hire very talented assistants, but it does take very often somebody from the outside shining a light on their assistant to help them see it, only because, as you say, they are so busy and so inundated in getting the show done and their work done and reading all these gazillion other writers that agents and managers are doing. So I I think that... Yeah, and they quite naturally want an assistant who is assisting them, uh, which which any showrunner badly needs right um, and so yeah they tend to quite understandably uh pigeonhole you yes uh, because if you're if you're serving them well in that capacity uh there is a certain anxiety factor uh to you know promoting that person and bringing in somebody new uh, yeah not that i was the the best assistant in the world uh 
<laughs> but I mean, how and how interesting. I'm curious. We'll have to get into later uh, how now you are with your assistant. How how interesting that is when you're swapping positions uh, and your climb is certainly was was very very rapid from the time you got staffed on 4400, which I was the executive at CBS Paramount covering the show when you got staffed on that show, and I remember your scripts stood out from the very, very beginning. Oh, thank so, you. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, should I talk about the process of getting on of staff course. there? Um, so, as I said already, uh, I had given Renee the story idea that the network responded to. Right. Um, and then when they finally picked up the show to, to be made into a pilot, um, Renee, had, at the same time, had had another show picked up. Uh, for Fox called Ricochet. That's so he was, right, I remember. He was making yeah. two pilots at once and was not going to be uh, was not going to be the day-to-day executive producer at the 4400. He was going to be focused on Ricochet. So he sort of recruited uh, an old colleague of his, Ira Bear, who had been Renee's boss uh, at Star Trek for years and years uh, and who is a you know, famous yes, Ira's amazing. teacher of yeah. writers and uh, you know, friend and mentor of mine, ultimately. Renee sent my script over to Ira, a, a soprano spec that I'd written, pardon me, uh, and said, you know, this guy gave me the idea that, that the network responded to. Uh, it would be great if you would, uh, you know, if you would consider letting him do this freelance. And uh, Ira, being the uh, the good guy that he is, read my uh, he read my spec, and he called me and said, yeah, I like this. You know, we can we can do this. Uh, you just have to know that. It's going to be like a job, you know, like uh, you're going to be paid for a script, but I want you to come in every day. We're going to try to get a writer's room going. Uh, just expect to be to be worked very hard, and to which I said, yeah, great, of course. You know? And he uh, certainly was not kidding about that. <laughs> no, no, he, he wasn't. Uh, and, you know, the it, it was such a lucky thing for me. Um, I went in. We As it turned out, the pilot was ultimately converted to two hours, uh, which meant that there needed to be some very quick writing done on it to to take it from a one-hour pilot to a two-hour pilot. So I actually got to, uh, about two weeks after coming in there, got to do some writing on the pilot, which was, um, I wrote two acts of what was an eight-act pilot, which was uh, enormously rewarding, but also intimidating. You know, I mean, the the people who were writing, in addition to me, were Ira Bear, uh, the, you know, famous showrunner, uh, and Robert Wolf, his longtime uh, sort of one-time mentor and now a showrunner in his own right, and then the guy writing the end of it was Scott Peters, who created the show. Uh, and then there was me, who had done, you know, exactly. So there were only the four, you four, at that, that point. first year, because yeah. it, was a, it was a miniseries. It was a oh, two-hour pilot, okay. and then there were four episodes. That's right, and it that. started as Viacom before it went to CBS. Right, and our studio was Viacom. We worked in their offices. Okay. We had one office. Uh, it was a very bare bones type of operation, but it was great for me because mm-hmm. what happened was the show went into production. Uh, Scott went up to Canada to be involved, you know, to supervise the production. Uh, and all the other, it was really just Robert, but Robert was a freelance writer, uh, and he had a lot of profile and certainly wasn't going to stick around and work for free, and who could blame him? Um, but I, who had nothing going on, was all too willing to do that. Uh, so I stayed in with Ira th- all the way throughout the production of the of the miniseries. Uh, and the great thing about working with Ira is he doesn't like to type. Um, mm-hmm. And so he loves to sit there with, another writer uh and as you're rewriting scripts you just sit there you discuss what the scene is and uh you're essentially writing it together uh so i spent that that miniseries i spent basically in it uh, once i had done my my own initial freelance and it had been very well received uh i just worked 
in an office with Ira for the next four months uh, just because basically because he doesn't like type. <laughs> um, right. But we got along great. Um, no, that sounds great. And that, um, then he hired me as a staff. At some point, it was just getting ridiculous. Uh, and so he went to Viacom and uh, demanded that I be made a story editor. And they said, no. Uh, <laughs> and then he, God bless him, I can't think of another showrunner who would do this. He uh, he left. He took all of his stuff down uh, and said, I'm not doing another thing on this show until you hire this guy. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and we I went love that. I didn't know days. about that yeah, story. Yeah, while, while, uh, while Viacom you know, gradually realized that this guy meant it. Uh, and ultimately that led to a staff job for the remainder of that, of that season. So picking up, um, you started. So... We're almost done talking about me. <laughs> no, we want to talk about you. Okay. We want to know the journey and the bumps and everything that happened along the way. Um, so 4,400, you started as a staff writer. Then it went from Viacom to CBS Paramount, which is right when I started at CBS Paramount is, in, and that's when you were so you served first as a miniseries and then as it went into the show. Yeah, that's right. I'll I'll sort of talk yes. uh, briefly about that transition. Um, I actually took a staff job in the interim. My first really official full time staff job was on this show called Doctor Vegas uh, oh, yeah. that was on CBS, um, which was a sort of star crossed show for sure. Uh, but I, was ultimately a rather good experience for me too because again uh, on a show like that where there's so much chaos. Uh, there any- was a lot of chaos yeah, on that show. Um, I remember hearing about that. <laughs> anybody who's just willing to uh, ignore the chaos and write is very valuable. So I ultimately got to do a bunch of scripts. And I, I and you work with Ira on that show. Ira was uh, yeah. a, a consultant on that show, and I worked with a guy who's now a good friend of mine, Jack Warman, who was right. the showrunner oh, on that show. Right. Yeah, Jack's right. terrific. Um, but that show was canceled around November of 2004. I think we had only aired like four episodes at almost the exact same moment that the 4400 was being picked up as a series because oh, uh, there had been a lot of – the ratings were huge on the 4400, but there was a lot of chaos because Viacom had gone out of business and there were no contracts with the actors. Uh, I mean it was a it was a lesson in um, – I, I wouldn't say the business side of it was handled terribly well. Right. Um, but it was great for me in that yeah. I was sort of coming at it free and clear for the second season. I w- had already established a good deal of value to Ira who was coming back as the showrunner. So – I had the good fortune of going back to the show on the second season as a co-producer. Oh, uh, that's right. You, so you yeah. got to skip story I editor, story editor and executive story, story editor. editor. Yeah, that's uh, wonderful. And and came on to uh, season two as a co-producer, which I took very seriously. I mean, I, I I was sort of humbled and terrified by that by that promotion. I was very excited about it too, of course. But um, and that second season is when. You know, I, I really had a lot of responsibility on the show, I would say, from that point forward. Um, yes. And so we were doing 13 rather than 6, uh, and I worked very closely with Ira. I think I had credit on an absurd number of episodes and, and, and I remember. was uncredited yeah. on, an, on an absurd number more, um, but was really learning what it is to run a show uh, at that point, uh, really only in the second season of being on a staff. Um, and it was hard but uh, it was, it was hard but it made you i think because you were in the good fortune of being in a scenario where you wrote as much as you did i remember being new to cbs paramount and in the board meetings and and i mean not the board meetings the staff meetings the weekly staff meetings and um pointing out to them how much your scripts were standing out which you know obviously the company then it was 
was it after your first year that you got the overall at CBS Paramount? Well, and you um, worked on it, media. What happened as well? was, uh, you know, I mean, I, yes, I I did have a good year on the forty four hundred that year. Um, wrote some, yeah, I mean, there were some really good really, episodes that second really year. Really strong um, episodes. You and I were both, yeah. And um, I was so tired at the end of it um, because I hadn't really had an experience like that before, and we were working, you know, pretty and much it was seven episodes. days. Yeah, yeah, it was thirteen episodes. Yeah. Um, and I, I was not sort of emotionally or mentally ready for the strain of that. So uh, when it was over in late July, I wanted nothing so much. as First of all, I wanted to propose to my girlfriend because uh, I was like about six months late in doing that. And ah. she was getting antsy. So we took a vacation in Palm Springs uh, in August uh, and got engaged. And I was about four days into that, what I imagined was going to be a very like sort of protracted uh, recovery period. Uh, when I got a call from my old boss, Renee... Uh, who told me that there was a writer who wasn't working out on Medium, um, and he wanted me to come work on the show uh, starting the following week. So I had to cut my vacation short. Um, oh, I actually debated whether right. or not to do it, but uh, yeah. clearly it was a it was a no brainer. Um, yeah, and they they I mean I'd been following the show because I had a lot of friends. So on you it. had no time off in between. I had, I like, had four. Days. I had like four <laughs> or five days. Yeah, during which I got engaged. Um, and Which then, is a happy time. Yeah, yeah, it was great. It was yeah. great. Um, and then so I, I went right into Medium, and they made a kind of a unique deal. Recognizing that I was going to be coming back to the 4400, uh, I was contracted to be a co-producer for seven episodes, um, during which they were hoping I was going to write at least one and maybe two. Uh, and I wrote uh, – the first one I wrote was the ninth episode of the second season, which was the 3D episode. Um, right. Which uh, was very well received. I had to give a lot of credit to uh, – my good friend Rob Doherty, who helped yes, me a lot with that episode. I remember. Um, but in the wake of it being well received, uh, that's when I got I made an overall deal with uh, and with controversial CBS as well. I think because it was so well received, and obviously it was the first time with the three D thing. Yeah, yeah. And so I think the idea of of those happening at one time, the idea, the gift of having to write as much as you did on forty four hundred, which therefore showed the studio. You can handle this workload, which led to Medium and Renee calling you and making that happen. And, and Moira and your whole camp there, which mm-hmm. was Jose. Was was Jose uh, no, there Jose, at that Jose, time or Jose came has, later? No, Jose actually never worked at Medium. Oh, uh, that's right. That's right. That's right. Moira, I, Moira and Renee were there for years. Right. And, that's uh, right. Rob and then Rob and came there. on yeah. later. And Javi, Ro- Javi was there. He's a... This is another writer who's right. kind of in our circle. Who's uh, in who your circle. For, that's great. That's great. Um so then that it was your very first episode of Medium that led to at a, at a co-producer level for you to get an overall with the studio. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Yes. Um which was great. <laughs> which meant they could lock you down for both shows as well. Yeah, it was and... a two and a half year contract um and I mean it's it's actually quite different than the traditional overall deal, uh, which is, uh, you know, largely gone, uh, unfortunately. Yeah, but, explain uh, to the audience what an overall deal with a studio is. Well, in the old days, an overall deal uh, was if the studio liked and trusted a writer and thought that a writer could develop hit shows for them, they would give them an enormous sum of money uh, to come and work for them for a period of time, usually two to three years. Uh, and the writer generally was not assignable to a show, Uh Unless it was their own show, so you would you would make a lot of money to think up ideas, um, and it's not terribly sensible from a business perspective. So I sort of understand why they've gone away. Then they changed it. Yeah, the the way it works now is basically 
you're under contract to a studio for a period of time. It's usually now two years, uh, and you're guaranteed income for those two years, which is nice because you're not subject to the uh, vicissitudes of the marketplace. Uh, but they can assign you to their shows over the course of that year uh, or, or over the course of those two years. So the, the first contract I worked on, uh, I was assignable to both 4,400 and medium, uh, and they simply saw the deal as a way to keep me staffed on both shows for two years. Uh, and then the the second contract I made with them, um, which I'm still working under, I am assignable to medium. Um, and so... And you can develop pilots. I can develop pilots, yeah. Right. Although they, they haven't been... Um, this was sort of my first real turn at bat with that because they've been so focused on, on having me just do staff work. Um, so, but yes, I, I'm, I'm Are you developing? To, yeah, kind yeah, we, we should. Of? Yeah, we were talking yeah. about that uh, yeah, a bit later. Thinking, yeah. yeah, you know, it was, I, had a, I had a good, fun year with that. Oh, uh, good. Oh, good. Uh, so that's an overall deal. You, you, you give, you sell yourself to a studio for a period of time. Uh, usually, the money is good, uh, and in return, they own you. Uh, and there, there are some real. I, I mean, actually, it's it's such a. Uh, it's it's such a. It's conceived of as the best possible thing that you can get is to have an overall deal. Uh, there's actually ups and downs to it. Uh, I mean, the, the obvious up is the guaranteed income, but uh, the downside is your it limits your development to to the studio you're contracting to. Uh, yeah. And while I, I, I've had a great relationship with both the development and the current side, I have no complaints. Uh, the project I did this year uh, is not really a CBS friendly project. Right. Uh, and while they gave it. It was a spec that I did, uh, and and they loved it and gave it, and are giving it a, a great shot and support out in the marketplace. Uh, there is no internal outlet for it uh, because it's a little edgier than what they like to do, which makes it much harder to sell. Um, so, from my perspective, having that spec, I would have been better off just from a purely mercenary standpoint, not having any not having any ties to any particular studio. No, I hear you. So you're saying when you're the overall has the gift of the security and the money, but the limit it's limiting to the idea of the identity of the network who you have the overall deal with. That's that's exactly right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. No, I I I think I appreciate your so two overall deals in your career. My gosh, Craig. And and you went on medium, you went from co-producer in 2005 to super to producer in 2006, supervising producer in 2007, co-EP in 2008, and now you and Rob run the room at Medium. Oh yeah, we did that in uh, in 08 too. That's um, great. Yeah, we took over in uh, in the beginning of season five. Uh, That's great. For for a number of those years, I was still bouncing back and forth between the 4400 and and Medium. Um, so I, it wasn't a full-time gig for me until my supervising producer year, which was season four, which was also the year of the writer strike. Um, so everything was very crazy that year. Um, yes. But then at – so my, my first contract with CBS Paramount was up at the end of season four, uh, and we made this contract. Uh, Glenn had approached us and said he wanted us to uh, – you know, he was looking for us to assume this role. And so I made a contract based on that, and, and Rob and I have been have been – Running the uh, the writing side of things uh, for Glenn, who is still the showrunner and present, very much present uh, every day, uh, for him for the past two seasons. He is speaking of Glenn Gordon, Karen, and of course, and and what what is it like to work for an icon like Glenn Gordon, Karen? What what have you learned from Glenn in the writing process? Ooh, uh, so much, <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
I, at first, it's just very intimidating. Um, yeah. Because although I'm, not, I you know, I was never, I was never a TV junkie uh, as a kid the way a lot of TV writers are. But I was a huge Moonlighting fan. Um, I mean, it really is one of the few shows when I was a kid that I would, I was, it was appointment TV for me. I was always there. Uh, so that was very intimidating to step into. Uh, you know, a lot of. And actually, with Ira on the forty four hundred, there are a lot of people who felt the same way because of his Star Trek background. Yes. But I didn't watch Star Trek, so and I think Ira liked that because I was just kind of another guy. I was not. Uh, I was certainly, you know, in the abstract impressed by the work he had done, but I, I just didn't feel passionately about it the way a lot of people do. Uh, so I came in very, uh, very intimidated and sort of very determined to uh, to prove my worth to him. Uh, and you know, when I first got that batch of scripts, and I was reading all of his material because, you know, Glenn sort of famously uh, takes a hand in every single script yes, uh, to, to varying degrees. Yeah. But um, I just was delighted by the way he wrote, you know, uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I was just very impressed by it. He has a unique style uh, and to see it on the page was kind of, was kind of thrilling. Um, and so for the first few years, it's just the process of, of learning what appeals and doesn't appeal and, and what his vision of the show is. And it, it's not, Often with Glenn, uh, a process of direct mentorship. It's it's sort of reading between the lines, you know. Uh, um, That's a good point. And yeah. when it's not reading between the lines, um, it's a scary conversation. <laughs> it's subtext. You no, have to subtext know the subtext with uh, Glenn in the beginning. You have to. As I like the reading between the lines. I mean, it it is really interesting because you Glenn is a writing showrunner. I mean, I I, I say very often. Whereas Ira, I say there are showrunners who who love the writing and are involved in every script and 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 love everything that goes along with it. And then there are showrunners who are very strong managers who run the room, who manage the staff well, who turn everything in on time. But very often those type of showrunners are not really writers to the full extent that someone like Glenn is. Hmm. Or you have showrunners who handle both extremely well. I would say Ira definitely looks at both very well. And and with Glenn, I think how I always viewed it as an executive is Glenn was an amazing writer and an amazing voice. And he knew to surround himself with people who, with regard to management of the staff and the deadlines and all that, it was it worked in a very harmonious way for them, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would just sound a note of caution. I don't, not even, I don't even think this is what you were saying, but, you know, I mean, Ira is every bit, as much a writing showrunner as Glenn is. I think oh, the, yeah. the difference no, no, no. is, um, yeah. the, you know, the difference is that Ira, he could do, he loved both. He loved both. Uh, yes. And he loved the, he, he's also very much loves the process of sitting down yes. in the writing room with the writing staff. Uh, yeah. I mean, he, that's the back. No, I actually was complimenting him. Ira. No, no, I, I, I was I, complimenting Ira because I said there, your, your hope as an executive is that you find a showrunner who does equally love both, but if you don't find a showrunner who equally loves both, knows how to surround him or herself with people to make that process work in a harmonious way. And Ira, I think, definitely did love both. And I think for for Glenn, when it comes to writing, I think he's so used to being um, the smartest guy in any room that he's in that... um, that collaboration isn't always terribly fruitful for him, you know. Right. Uh, and that, I, I say that with total. Respect. He is he is yeah. the smartest guy usually in whatever room he's in. Um, right. So it's there. There's not a lot of uh, exposure to Glenn when you're a staff 
you're you're coming up on staff on his show. You know, I mean, you, you speak, you see him often, but um, you're not in there sitting in a room breaking stories. Um, and so you learn when you turn your script in and it's well received. Uh, and he's very generous about that. Um, and then he, he revises your script. And uh, it, it's not a process of sitting down for like a four hour note meeting generally. Uh, more often you are you're getting the revisions and you're, you're learning from what he's done and you're, you're sort of learning how to, uh, how to target his sensibility the more, more specifically the next time, the next time you go up to bat. And I, I think, you know, you tapped on some things, the idea of being exposed to Ira and being exposed to Glenn and being on this climb that you've been on to where you're going to be at that point very, very soon, no doubt, is is really looking at style, which even as a co-EP and running a room, you're utilizing styles of the people you've mm -hmm. worked with before, noticing what works, what could work better for you. And, and knowing how to implement them. So when, we'll take a break right now. And when we get back, I would love to go into that with you as far as your own style that you're developing in the room in working with writers. You bet. Okay. This is Jen Grisanti of Jen Grisanti Consultancy, Inc. We are out with Craig Sweeney, co-EP on Medium. You're listening to StoryWise with entertainment consultant Jen Grisanti. StoryWise is a podcast designed to give you the story behind the people who tell stories, offering you insight on what it takes to work as a writer in television and film. Hear this and other podcasts on www.jengrisanticonsultancy.com, a full-service writer consultancy committed to guiding your vision. We are back with Craig Sweeney, co-EP on Medium, which is now on CBS. Um, when we took a break, we went into, we started going into the idea of the writer room. Now, you are running the writer room at um, Medium with Rob Doherty. Take me into what the experience, the transition was of going from a staff writer who was working toward the goal of the person running the room to being that person running the room. Uh, sure. It's, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the differences between the rooms on the two shows that I, you know, that I've, oh, I would I love that. Sort of run yeah, on. that um, would be great. Running a room sort of came to me by accident, uh, very organically, which was that I, I was doing it to a certain extent without being aware that I was doing it uh, in the second season of the 4400 when I was a co-producer. Uh, just when Ira wasn't in the room, um, I, it, as it would happen over the course of that year, it, people just sort of started to look to me to do it, um, which was which was great. Uh, but I, I consciously started to do it during the third season of our show, um, which was, the from a production standpoint, the most harried and... Uh, and difficult of the years that we did, and, and probably also creatively the most challenging. Um, but that during that season, both Ira and I were dealing with different things in our personal lives, uh, and also what was for various reasons a, a much more chaotic than usual production schedule. Um, and I was determined to do whatever I could to kind of uh, help him and to, to ease the burden that was on him. Um, and so actually towards the end of that third year, uh, when he was focused on rewrites, uh, I would gather the room, uh, and I was just sort of determined to break stories to, to, to really try to do useful work, uh, in his absence. Uh, 
And so I would gather the staff, and it was a small staff, whoever wasn't writing, um, and we would just break stories. And it, as it turned out, um, I was I was pretty good at it. <laughs> I was able to. Uh, I mean, it, it really just came from a determination to help him uh, for useful work to be happening while he was not in the room. Um, and so I, I, I sort of learned how to guide a discussion, how to keep things focused, uh, how to keep everybody on point when when a break is needed uh, and when a break is the exact opposite of what is needed. Uh, Can you describe um, for the listeners just like your process of breaking a story, like how you begin? Absolutely. Um, and again, it's different between the two shows. Show, but yeah. um, on the 4400, I don't like to go – and actually just in general, I'm, I'm not a believer in going into the room and everybody sitting there and going, okay, so what the heck are we writing about? Um, to me, that's just a recipe for uh, chaos. <laughs> um, I don't like to gather the room until there is the subject of a story, uh, until I'm convinced that there's a reason to gather the room because we know what we're going to write about. Um, I don't think – it's terribly efficient to have nine minds sitting around trying to think of one idea when people can be thinking separately. Um, That's a good point. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I don't gather the room until I'm convinced of what the story is. Uh, and then it's just a process for me. If I, I generally have a yellow notepad in front of me uh, and I will have a, in my head a rough shape of how the episode starts. I may have a rough shape of how it ends, although I think it's, it's very important to be willing to deviate from that, of course. Um, and then it's just a process of talking. I mean, you just stay focused. You uh, you talk out. I, you just talk out the beats in great detail. You, what is the teaser? How does it start? Is that entertaining? Is there a better version? Uh, you write it all down on the yellow pad, and you flip over and you start Act One. Uh, and okay, do we have to launch a B story here? Uh, just a very specific breakdown of beat by beat. Uh, even even as specific as what what's being said. What's the yeah. you know what's the dialogue? Uh, are you may be riffing a, a a good dialogue run or somebody else maybe uh and you're just you're just taking everything down uh and it's a process that ideally uh if it's a well conceived story you can get through i've found in 3 or 4 days uh of meeting in afternoons uh i prefer to meet I prefer to write in the morning and and meet in the afternoons uh and it, it, so you meet in the afternoons and you have 3 or 4 days brainstorming for the episode and then do you send a person off to outline or send them off to script or what is that? Uh, no, we, we do outlines on, on uh, we have to keep the secret from the network because we don't show them to them. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> No one no we, one from that network we, is listening. No. <laughs> yeah, we do outlines. <laughs> on both the 4400 and medium we did outlines but they they, they weren't for general consumption, they were tools for whoever the writer of that episode was going to be. So right. at the end of that process, uh, usually uh, I will withdraw with uh, either if I'm writing it, I'll do it myself. Or if I'm writing it with somebody else, that person and I will withdraw together and we will execute an outline in the mornings over the next few days. Uh, and then there will be a, a 15 to 22 page document for that person to work off of. Um, and I think, though, you touched on something. I mean, definitely Medium is in its fifth year. Six year. I mean, seven episodes. When you're in your sixth year of a show, you definitely have the liberty to go straight to script. I mean, in in my experience, you know, when I mean at the studio, yes, and in at the uh, company with the showrunner and and the staff, yes, there may be an outline. But I definitely think that it's common practice that as the show goes on, you know, 
in my experience that as the show goes on you go straight to script uh, as far as what the network is. <laughs> I've been a little yeah. spoiled because I, I've never done it any other way than that. I know right. it's, that's that's rare, so uh, right. I'm not... On 4400, it was the same way, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, we went straight yeah. to script. That's um, what I remember. And, uh, you yeah. know, so my experience, just ignore me, uh, listeners, right. if, because very likely you're going to be giving your outlines to, this, to the network and the studio. And I've yes. been... I've oh, been in the beginning, bit, yeah. absolutely. In the beginning, absolutely. And I think, you know, if I think about over... My 12 years as an executive, I think as shows went on that and you establish yourself, then the network would be fine with the idea of eliminating the outline process. But in the beginning, it's a must. There's no doubt about that. In the beginning, it, it, it is a must when a show first starts. Well, we are of two minds on that. Yes. But, uh... are we, are we, <laughs> actually, you know, it's interesting in thinking about it now. Forty four hundred. Did it always go straight to script? Uh, it did. From the yeah. Beginning? I mean, oh, we circulated right. outlines internally. But um, you don't want to teach people that because that is not the norm, right? Well, I mean, if you can get it uh, on your show, I, yes. I think your life will be a little bit easier. But because um, and what do you feel? Just, you feel the difficult. outline process is more beneficial if it stays with the writer room, the studio. I, I, the few times that I've had to submit outlines right. uh, for notes to studios and networks, I, I find that it's difficult for the people who are reading it to understand that that is not the script itself. Uh, right. And that I think, I feel like weighing in too heavily, I, I always am figuring out new things uh, as I'm taking a script from outline to script, you know? Okay. Uh, and I'm, and I, I need to feel a freedom to deviate if I yes. feel like I'm improving the storyline. So, if you're if you're treating it as a you know a part of a, an assembly line where right. there is an agreed upon blueprint that must be adhered to, I think it's to the detriment of the of the oh that's and a the very show. good point. Um, I I like that. I think that's a very good point. And because you have had the good fortune of working on a show that at the very beginning, because it went from a mini series to a series, probably was part of the reason too and had the agreement with the network too. Yeah, we sort of, um, yes. we sort of snuck in the back. Yeah, door. no, I I think that I think that is great. And now looking at the writers when you are running a room, what in staffing a staff, mm -hmm. what what do you see um beginning writers uh mistake-wise? What do you see that you could advise writers not to do when they're brand new on a show in a writer's room. All right. Well, the first thing is easy, and I think they hear the same thing from everybody, but don't bring your phone into the room. Uh, oh, I've never had anyone say that. I think that's great. Listen to me. <laughs> don't bring your phone into the room. Nothing will annoy your boss faster than that. Leave your phone in your office. That's Don't great. put it on vibrate. Don't even bring it into the room. Uh, okay. So there's that. Yeah. Um, I think at the lower levels, there is a tendency among writers to mistake how they feel they're doing in the room for how they feel they're doing on the show. Uh, and participation in the writer's room is really, in my mind, one important but not all important aspect of how you're doing on a show. Uh, if you're on a show where the room gathers for eight hours a day, it comes to feel like everything. Um, and it's not. I, 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 for me, the two core skills of success on a, on a show are the ability to come up with your own original story ideas. Uh, not that you put some spin on something that somebody else came up with uh, in the room. An idea that would not exist but for the fact that you were hired on that show. That's a number one important skill. And this skill, I guess, is 
co-A number one and that it's equally important is the ability to execute a draft. Uh, and you're not learning that at all when you're in the room. I mean, uh, you need to be finding time to learn the voice of the show. Uh, and I, you know, I was crazy about it. Like, and I'm always surprised when writers are less insane than I am. I mean, I, I would take Glenn's scripts at medium and retype them verbatim so I could learn the way that he did commas and, and, uh, and italics and parentheticals and i mean oh i uh, love that that's a great idea it's like learning a language yeah Yeah. um and i would you know i would pick teasers that i liked and just type them word for word in order to uh, in order to get a sense of uh of what the voice of the show was uh and it's it's stuff like that i think that contributes to staff success more so for me than than you know the ability to be funny in 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 the room um I actually think the, the writer's room is a heavily mythologized place. And when you're not on a staff, it, it, it feels like this incredible thing where it's a, you know, it's a race of, of brilliant people, uh, you know, and you can't even quite imagine what it's like. And really it, it, it can, it can very often be a place to procrastinate. <laughs> you have your good days and your bad days. You have your days where ideas come out by the many and you have your days where not so much. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, that sort of leads to another common mistake that, that young writers make, which is, uh, you know, any group of people that gathers in a room for, uh, for a long time every day, uh, there's going to be rivalries that develop and tensions and politics, uh, and getting involved with that in any way whatsoever. Uh, I mean, this is a very easy piece of advice. Uh, just don't play. Don't play that. Uh, you don't have to. It's so simple. And I'm amazed how many people uh, fail to live by this rule. Uh, your boss is not interested in the rivalries in the writing room. I promise you, your boss is focused on who is making his or her life easier. Uh, so the uh, taking sides in disputes or squabbles or or really even voicing too much frustration with the show. I mean, there, there's always going to be something to be frustrated about because making a TV show is so very, very hard, you know. Um, but the people that, that you know, for lack of a better word, kvetch or bitch about uh, what's not good about the show are generally, in my experience, not the people who are really contributing to the show or doing anything to, to make it better. Uh, so too much focus on the negative uh falling into the trap of bitching or getting involved in, in office politics. These are all things that it's incredibly easy just to ignore. (laughs) So that, I mean, those are great points for proper etiquette in the writer's room. I mean, I think that, you know, very often in life people, it it is an interesting thing because I think where it, it probably gets blurred is in one sense, the writer writer's room is a place where you're using your story and you're well, you you need to be able to access it and pull mm-hmm. story from it and pitch it out. So then you have a personal aspect of your life that is bring, being brought to the room. But I like that you say this because beyond that, beyond utilizing that for story, there's not room for anything else because of the timeline in TV, because of the expectation and the job that needs to be done. It is making it about the work. And not getting involved in in the bullshit. Yeah, exactly. And uh, as a corollary to that, I would say, you know, um, another very common mistake in, you know, young staff members is holding on to an idea for too long, holding on to it past the point where it's contributing to the discussion anymore. Right. Uh, you if you're drawing from your own life, you want that 
it can feel personal when it when somebody tells you that that's not the solution to whatever problem is trying to be solved. Uh, and you can become too invested in the idea that that's the uh, that's the solution. Uh, yes. And so you'll constantly be circling back to it and repitching and repitching and repitching the same idea. And I promise you, nothing is more frustrating or more exhausting to knowing uh, when to let go. Yeah. Yes. It, it's it's um, again, it's I, I feel like there is a useful guideline here. If you've pitched it twice and nobody has. Uh, I mean, it's an old saw. If you've pitched it twice and nobody's responded, let it go. Don't pitch it again. Let it yeah, go. no, I think that's great. And um, let's talk about the writer meeting. When you are staffing for a new uh, new staff writer, um, when I say staff writer, it means any level writer mm-hmm. that you're staffing for your show. What do you consider to be a successful meeting? Like, how do you know in a meeting, okay, this is someone who... I, I can see on the show. Uh, well, I mean, there's a certain lightning in a bottle aspect to it um, that you can't really quantify and so isn't terribly helpful to talk about. But there's an approach to a staffing meeting that is really the same approach that I take to any meeting I take anywhere. Um, that has really helped me. Uh, and so I'll share it uh, in the hope do. that it will help somebody else who's listening out there. I think the biggest mistake... Um, in a staffing meeting and in any meeting is letting the meeting come to you, being passive about it. Um, you should have any meeting I take, uh, even this one. Uh, I, I write an outline for how I want the meeting to go before I go in there. I imagine that I'm going to walk into the room and uh, that nobody there is going to have anything to say and that they might not even know why they're there <laughs> and that they might even be resentful about it uh, and that it's on me to lead them through a productive and goal-oriented 45 minutes to an hour and a half. Uh, so you go in with intention. Yeah, I I, I yes. write a uh, – I have a little, like, uh, you know, steno pad, and I will actually write an outline for the meeting. You know, I think I that's it, fantastic. Before I, have, before I have any meeting. Uh, and, of course, you've got to be flexible enough to, to veer from it. Um, but you'd be amazed how helpful that's been, you know, like uh, I've – So you research the people who you're going to meet. You have an idea of what in your background is going to sell you for that show or that position. Or so you, you kind of line up what you, to make sure that you say everything you need to say. That's exactly. I mean, you know, I've had a limited number of staffing meetings myself on the, on the other side. Um, But I was very briefly out there and uh, you know, before I made this most recent deal with Medium, and I, I only did one meeting. It was at Fringe, um, but I did exactly that. You know, right. I, I had a, I had, I came in with an outline, and I, I learned about the guy I was meeting with, uh, and I learned about the non-writing producers who were in the room too, and I, and I knew the material Smart. back and forth, and back and forth, and back and forth, and I had my own ideas about where it could go, and uh, I had a lot to say that was good about it, and I had. I had my share of not criticisms, but ideas of where it could be. What, how Which it, can be risky. It, it, yeah, it yeah. can be. I mean, it's it's the trick. At your level, the, I think that's expected. I think at the lower level, it's you, harder. You don't want to come off negative yeah. in any way. And right. I wasn't uh, in, in that meeting. Right. It, it's it's about. Um, Knowing what you're bringing to the table. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, and so I'm, as far as I know, I'm the only person I know who does that, who approaches I mean, who really is that nerdy about it as far as, like, actually writing an outline for a meeting? Uh, but it it's earned me 
the reputation of being good in meetings. So, oh, uh, see? I, and I, Well, I remember, and I was one of your very first, you said I was your first or second meeting. Second, I think. Yeah. And I remember how, I, I still remember what a strong meeting it was. I think um, it is, now, if you were, say, somebody who you've staffed on the show in the last two years, mm -hmm. if you were to think about the meeting and the point in the meeting when you're like, okay, this I have to have this person and this voice. Was it their spec script well, that they wrote? Was it their personality in the room? Was it a combination of both? Like, what leads well, you're, you? You're, you're not meeting with anybody generally unless you like their writing. You right. Know? So uh, that's already the most important hurdle. Right. Uh, and for Which that... is good for writers to know. If they're being brought to be in front of you, you already like their writing. So. Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't, I've never done maybe one or two like sort of favor meetings, meetings yeah. um, but it's it's ultimately not fair to anybody involved. I um, agree. So yeah, no, you you already like the person's writing. So you know what I'm looking for. Uh, I want somebody who knows the show first and foremost, who who knows what it is, uh, who can speak about it. At a level that goes much deeper than, you know, having watched it casually a, a few times. I'm looking for somebody who's already begun to do the work of dissecting the structure of a show, of, of what makes a medium episode. I mean, the best writer meeting we've ever had, um, he, he, he was probably already in anyway because he didn't, he, he didn't know this. But, uh, you know, this was, it was a guy I had worked with on the 4400. Michael and, Narducci. Yeah, Michael Narducci. Yay. Uh, and uh, we brought him in. Uh, before season five of Medium when we were doing our first year of hiring. Uh, and, you know, Rob had a voice in who we were hiring, and we were also still working with uh, Moira Kerland at that time, so it was really going to be three different voices as far as who who was hiring. Um, so it wasn't a done-done deal. Not at all, not yeah, at all. And I was, and I was yeah. not going to shove him down anybody's throat either. Right. You know, I, I knew I liked him, um, but I knew he had to prove himself. Uh, and he came in, everybody liked his scripts, uh, but he talked about what a Medium episode was uh and he had dissected it so accurately that we were just wowed. I mean, he it, it was like he had been listening in to uh, our writer's room's conversations, you know? I mean, he he, he said, so, yeah, I mean, I, I have this sense that, uh, you know, it tends, to, it tends to begin in an outlandish way and that we're looking to, you know, we're looking to make Allison look wrong or dumb or stupid and that it's not really about the procedure. It's about how whatever she's investigating affects her life uh, and that ultimately... And, He's actually said it much better than I'm saying it right now. But, you know, and then ultimately it's a crime that is grounded in some way in a motive of greed or lust, uh, which we've had writers who've been on the show for years who we can't get to understand that, you know. Uh, uh, that's not true. Um, well, no, it's, but it's, it's, it's a hard thing when you like you have a show that deals with a case. And deals with an emotional aspect of family. Those are two things that are, are not so easy to marry. And it, it does take a talent to know how to bring those together in a smooth transitional way. But if you find somebody in a meeting who's able to talk about your show from the outside with that level of, uh, of detail and intelligence, you know. you'll snap that person up in a minute. You know? I and, think that's, yeah. And we hired Mike great. and, uh, you know, he's he's been... He's, he's had many a, produced episodes. He's been a star, yeah. yeah. He's, he's, he's just he's been great for us. He he wrote the ninth episode of the year, which is filming now. And, great. You know, it, it. I think Glenn barely touched it. You know, I mean, he's just he's having a great success on the show. I yeah, I've I've spoken with Michael, and he's very very happy there. 
What um, now? Tell me about going from NBC to CBS and what that has done for the show. You are now paired with Ghost Whisper mm-hmm. and Numbers, which which seems to be doing well block wise. Yes, uh, I think so. Yeah, I yeah. Mean, um, as far as how the change affected our day to day life, really not so much. Um, it has this sort of happy side effect of. Uh, Kim Metcalf, who's been our studio executive for a, for a number of, for some time now, uh, is now our studio and our network executive. So uh, everything is consolidated. Yeah, which is so nice. you, it just oh, that's sort of really cuts down nice. On, uh, yeah, on, on the red tape factor in a, in a great way. Oh, uh, that's it's, great. It's great. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. It's, it's a and it's great that they're willing to do that. By the way, you know ABC I mean? probably did that too. No, that's great. Good for the yeah. Yeah, uh, we were so sort it's of, less. It, chefs in the kitchen. Yeah, and we yeah. weren't, you know, there's definitely any time you're going to have a new primary contact at the network, there's some anxiety that goes along with that because right. you develop a comfort level with the person you've been working with uh, over the years. Uh, Bruce Evans was who we worked with at NBC, and we knew him very well. Uh, so the fact that we, that it was just Kim, we didn't have to adjust to a new person, was was has been great. Uh, and other than that, it doesn't affect us much day to day. It's, it's more of a sense uh, that the network is more invested in our success. Um, and I, I say it's that also not, the studio. Yeah, then, yeah, exactly. And I say that not to slag NBC in any way, but the reality of the business now is that if you are, if the studio that's making your show is a different corporate entity than the network that's airing it, it's just going to be that much, it's going to always going to be difficult for you to have long-term success because they're not, they're not incentivized to have the show succeed in quite the same way as if the, if the entities are the same. Uh, right. Everybody's making a ton of money uh, if the studio and the network are the same and the show is a hit, uh, you know, I mean, they'll 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 give you all the support in the world. So we just, it's just sort of a feeling that we are, uh, they're more invested in the in, in well, long term success because of the show. they have more financial gain, you know, to gain. Yeah, from dollars. The, and... Yeah, definitely. And then also, I I think I read um, a trade article that said it was a good move for Medium to go to CBS, and the ratings have been. Yeah, um, I, I, you know, the ratings, we sort of have been adhering to what is our typical pattern. We debuted to a to a good number. Uh, right. I don't think anybody was doing handstands. But right. um, that number continues to build very good. slightly the more good. we, you know, and we had our season high last, the last, the most recent episode. Oh, uh, congratulations. Yeah. yeah, I think the article was after that episode. Our so 100th great. episode, yeah. uh, oh, which aired excellent. on Friday. Yeah, unbelievable. Excellent. Um, so, I, 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 you know, I would guess uh, if... Everything stays the same. There is a, you know, there there would be a future at the network for the show. Oh, I think that's fantastic. That is great. All right. So for our last question, I would love thinking about everything you've learned from the beginning. I would love, like, if you were to give a new writer advice, or you were to say to talk to yourself back then, now. With the insight you have now, <laughs> okay, what would you tell yourself? Sorry, I'm just thinking about time travel. Uh, <laughs> 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 uh, I'm sort of nerdy like that. Uh, I'm just going to imagine I'm talking to a young writer. Okay, okay, myself. easier. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I've already said I think what is the most important piece of advice uh, that you can offer anybody joining a writing staff, which is to focus at the exclusion of almost everything else on what are the two core elements of success on a staff, which are 1A, 
the ability to come up with your own original stories, and Co-1A, the ability to execute a relatively clean first draft that your boss doesn't have to do a lot of work on. Uh, every story of success in Hollywood is completely unique in terms of how it comes, where it happens, when you get your big break. I mean, there's just no duplicating. I could talk to you about how I broke into the business, but it just wouldn't do anybody any good. Uh, I promise you that if you can do the co-1As, uh, however and whenever it comes for you, uh, you'll be ready for success. And therefore, you know, you'll be, you'll be valued on staff. You'll be promoted on staff. Uh, you'll have a good experience on staff. You'll start to get production responsibilities. Uh, if you can do those two things, uh, you're good to go. <laughs> I think that I, I think that's excellent advice. I do. And I, I, I feel like for you, as I've, I've noticed with every writer who I've seen, their career take off to the level that yours has taken off and and I can I can see it you can really see it in in the lower level the idea of somebody who has the vision who has the talent that and who has the flexibility to move forward it it is nice when you see it happen and when you see it go into play but it all starts with having the confidence to know you can get there and and I definitely noticed that with you in the beginning. So I think this is tremendous and congrats on all of your success on on medium and your overall deals and your life with your new baby and, and your marriage. (laughs) And, 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 you know, this is, this, this is a great thing and you have a lot to celebrate. And I am very grateful for you taking the time to share your insight with us today. Can I just stay in this black box for a few hours? It's very comfortable. (laughs) I know. I know. And we are out with Craig Sweeney, co-EP on Medium, now on CBS. And this is Jen Grisanti of Jen Grisanti Consultancy, Inc. You've been listening to StoryWise with Jen Grisanti. If you're looking to get to the next step in your career and need a guide who has been there and knows what it takes, go to www.jengrisanticonsultancy.com. On the website, you can also find the latest on writing programs, feature film festivals, and other writing competitions. StoryWise is produced by Joel Metzger and Hot House Bruiser Productions. 